Uh, so my talk tonight is called The Difficulty with the Love of God. Since there's so many people here, I just feel like there's a lot of difficulty <laughs> with the love of God. Um, understandable. I am feeling a little scattered. Um, I'm feeling very confident in myself, but my mind is a bit scattered, which is a very dangerous thing. Uh, it's like a 16-year-old behind a fast car. <laughs> But that's okay. Uh, I'm going to uh, to talk about this and maybe even kind of workshop if I feel. But uh, so scattered that my I couldn't print this in the format I like, and so literally I can't hardly read my notes. <laughs> so if I pause, I haven't forgotten you. I just don't know what I'm saying on my notes. But I'll return back to you. Now, this is a topic that a lot of people that come to Labrie that really struggle with it. And it's often the question about how can I experience the love of God? I don't feel very lovable. Well, I'm not going to really be addressing that question. I'll hope to address it, but in a roundabout way. So that might disappoint you, but I hopefully in our workshop, we can get to it. Um, and so... My approach may seem not obvious at first, but I hope that it will get there for you. My starting point is that the love of God cannot simply be understood in an individualized and emotional way. It's actually supposed to be understood in a corporate way, a relational way, that we experience the love of God in relationship with those who are of God, who those, with fellow Christians. And the demonstration and the experience of the love of God most clearly happens in relationship with fellow Christians. Now, if that sounds terrible, you're not alone. But this is the call of the Bible for us. And we have to consider that. And so I believe, and what I want to argue is that some of the experience, the lack of love that we experience from God is because of the lack of experience of the transformed relationships that we are not experiencing in relationship with other Christians. Um, when the love, when loving relationships, supernaturally restored relationships, relationships that are embodied in Christ, we actually start embodying God's love and we start experiencing it, start being renewed by it, growing by it. So that's really what I want to address tonight. <clears throat> Uh, and I'm not just saying the love of God as to apply um, to this kind of general sentiment that we might experience among other like-minded people or like-spirited people. That's not what I'm saying. But that the love of God is love from a personal God who is transforming us into new, a, a new humanity. So it's not merely just mystical, but it is communal and it is demonstrable. It's volitional, and so it should be practiced, it should be exhibited, it should be experienced. Uh, and so that's the direction I'm going to go. So where I want to start, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about two different difficulties that we have with the love of God, where we lack the experience of it. Uh, and I'm going to tell you about a movie and then draw comparisons of those two things. And then I'm going to draw our mind to the prayer that Paul has to the churches in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to speak about that a little bit and then talk about how that impacts us individually 
relationally and as a church. Okay, so that's that's the kind of lay of the land. At any point, you can interrupt me. In fact, it might give me a chance to reassess what I'm saying. <laughs> so do you want me to reassess at all at this point? Are you ready for it? Okay. So the movie I want to talk about is one that I just showed recently, and it's called As It Is in Heaven. Has anyone seen this film? Liz, thank you. <laughs> uh, the Bray students are like, yes. Uh, it was a Swedish film in 2004. Now, uh, it's an interesting film that it tells about a guy named Daniel Darius, uh, and He's a famous conductor and he's, he's from this small village where he was bullied, but uh, he finally, and he just wants to open people's heart through music, but people don't really appreciate. He gets into the, he gets uh, very successful. He's very competitive and he's very excellent, but it's almost killing him seeking this perfection, this excellence. And uh, he wants to open people's hearts through music, but he himself, his heart is getting weak. So he needs to take a break. So he decides to go back to his village where he grew up, but no one knew, knows him. They only know him as this famous conductor, but they don't know actually he grew up there where his father died and where his mom died. So he moves back to this community and he just wants a break. But of course, the church pastor, first one to show up, hands him a Bible, says that he's kind of the big guy in town. If he needs anything, come to him. He said, and he goes, we also have a choir. And if you ever want to give him a little tips, he's like, I'm just here to listen. I'm not here to do anything. Well, he walks in and he sees these people and he sees that they're just innocent people just trying to get a tune together, singing their songs in the church. And he goes to the pastor and says, okay, I want to be the cantor of the, of the choir. And the guy's like, well, okay. Well, he starts, and at first, it's not quite as anyone expected. He wants them just to draw music from the heavens, but just they just need to sit and listen. They need to hold hands. They need to embrace each other. They need to lay down, and they start laughing, and they start having fun, and they're not even singing. And so the pastor is getting more and more suspicious of this guy, even though he's famous. Uh, but everyone's having fun. The priest, uh, the pastor's wife is like, don't worry, we're having so much fun. It doesn't even matter if we don't sing. Uh, but eventually he starts teaching them to sing and they sound beautiful. Because what's happening is each one of them are finding their own voice. But as each one find their own voice, um, uh, the, the people who have the most difficulty are the ones who are most moralistic. They don't want to open up. Uh, the pastor's wife is just so ready to be loose and just have fun, but the pastor's getting very jealous of his influence over his wife. Uh, this person who has, um, who has disabilities is even welcomed in, uh, and people start pouring in, and he starts transforming the village, and, and it's, they're all finding their own voice, their own finding their own freedom, and they're singing music in a way that they've never experienced before. But the pastor has become more and more jealous. And in fact, it gets to a point where they have dance and they sing and drink and just have a ball. And uh, the one little moralistic Judas in the story comes to the pastor and says, look, they're up to no good. <laughs> and the pastor's like, I knew it. 
I knew it. They're enjoying themselves because they must be sinning. And so he, he, he comes down hard and the wife is so upset and said, you know, the church has invented sin just to repress people. And he's like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, says the priest. And she goes, I do. And she pulls out and she goes, you know what? You don't need to be so hypocritical. And she pulls out the pornography that he'd been hiding in the, in the bookshelf. And he feels totally ashamed. And she goes, you don't, you don't need to feel shame. God doesn't condemn you, neither do I. This is a natural desire. You know, let's just make love together. So they make love. And then he's flogging himself the next morning for hating himself for making love to his wife in an uninhibited way. Uh, well, he basically kicks this guy out um, of the, the choir. The choir decides to leave the church. And so they move from the church into the schoolhouse where he lives. And so in the schoolhouse, they start having like food together. They start helping each other. And in fact, they finally go to this big choir event where this man goes and they, the, the choir director shows up late. I'm going to ruin the movie for you. Not that maybe you want to watch it anyway, but he shows, uh, he basically has a heart attack. He falls, he bonks his head. He's dying. He's bleeding. Okay. So he's dying, but he's clearly a Christ figure. And he hears the music coming through the speakers. And so when, what happens is called let the people sing as the event. And these people are, uh, they don't know what to do without the choir director. They practiced all these songs. Well, they go back to his original instructions to find their own voice. Ah, uh, and the other person, ah, uh, like that. No, that wasn't perfect. I need, <laughs> I need other people. But anyway, it's just, it's, it's perfectly in tune with the song in my head. <laughs> anyway, but they all start singing and it just becomes, and some people even go, ah, la, 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 la. And people are so inspired that they all stand up. People from all the nations around the world. They're all singing their own song. They're all, and even uh, doing some glossolia. They're doing some tongues. And it becomes the picture that through this guy, that this has become a new humanity. That the church has repressed them. And now they found freedom, harmony, and love. Okay, so that's the story. Now, I tell this story. I've gone through it. Because I think it highlights two difficulties that people have with the love of God. There's two obstructions to understanding biblically what the love of God is. The first one is obviously the hypocritical, legalistic, moralistic church. A lot of people have a hard time experiencing the love of God because what they've experienced as a church is judgment, hatred, hypocrisy, repression. Uh, Numerous people have come to Labrie, and some have come to give up faith, have come here to close the door to faith. And I try to draw them attention to the scriptures, but they've been so deeply wounded that they can no longer believe that God is loving. And when they look in the scriptures, all they see or hear is their father's angry voice. One student wrote to me, I will call her Sarah. That is not her real name. Uh, and I asked her to express herself in an email. I like to continue discussions with people after they leave. And she said this, and she's talking about her narcissistic, angry, moralistic father. And partly the reason that she's leaving is because 
her, what she sees in her father is exactly what she sees in God, that God himself is narcissistic, self-serving. And this is what she wrote, just one section out of multiple emails, but I thought it captured this. <clears throat> you end up feeling guilty for just existing, even though you only exist because of them. It is the same with God. I'm being punished. And God is just barely holding back his anger at me because I exist in a quote unquote sinful and fallen nature. And yet I had nothing to do with my being created in this way. I supposedly inherited a sin nature and can therefore be punished. God, who has supposedly knit me together in my womb, but hates me for just being, how can you rest in that kind of love? Powerful, hard. Um, I had lots of conversations with her and uh, Schaefer, he and his wife, Francis and Edith started Labrie and, and he in fact was kind of a pastor like this, but after he really submitted himself to the fullness of God, he realized that his cold, dead orthodoxy, when we want purity, but we're not expressing love. We want morality, we want holiness, and this is just and right. But when it is not expressed in personal loving relationship, it is cold and dead orthodoxy, it's harmful, and it does not, it not only doesn't express the love of God, it actually expresses something and saying that God is a liar. It says that you say that you love your brother, but if you hate your, um, you say that you love God but hate your brother, then you make God a liar. And so many people have experienced God as a liar because of what they experienced in these churches. And so, so this is the one model. They want purity, but they have not love. They have truth, they have morality, but they have not love. But the other side I find just as damaging, and this may be a little bit surprising, but the second is the church that they become, the church in the schoolhouse, the church where sin is invented, where God does not condemn because there is no sin. There is, in fact, no need for God. What we need is just to find our own voice and have uninhibited freedom. And in that way, we can experience love. I mean, in fact, this is where our cultural narrative falls today. And a lot of churches are accommodating the cultural values in order to be relevant in expressing God is love. Um, it, it ends up being like John Lennon. Imagine, imagine there is no heaven. Imagine there is no hell. It's easy if you try. I, I hope you join with me. I imagine a world of peace. Uh, if we remove religion, we have harmony. We have peace. Um, <clears throat> in fact, some people might even say that this is expressive of divine love. But throughout the movie, they do a trick on you. And I, uh, Francis Schaeffer called these connotation words. It's where uh, one woman sees the conductor and she sees other, and she goes, sometimes I see, he goes, do you believe in angels? She goes, yes. And sometimes I see wings on Connie. Sometimes I see wings on Stig. Sometimes I see wings on you. And so, uh, and in fact, it's funny that he's such a Christological figure that when he comes into the choir, they're all excited that he's coming. And, the, and, uh, uh, one guy says, prepare the way the Lord is coming. So he becomes this figure 
uh, that's making this promise. And even it comes into this new <clears throat> humanity where they're singing song, where they're finding their own voice and they find perfect harmony. But <clears throat> these words would fall short once you removed the sacredness, if you remove the language of God, of that rootedness of love, that, that um, angelic. If you just have a material existence where there is no, not only not sin, but there is no God, there's no heaven, no hell, there's only natural cause, then it becomes a very difficult place to understand what is good. So obviously they're very selective on morality. It's okay for this woman to sleep around, but it's not okay. Uh, and it's okay, the priest's wife or the pastor's wife said, it's okay that you're using pornography because I know that this is a natural desire. But Connie beats his wife. It's not okay. And so it seems to pick and choose, but they think if religion was removed, it would somehow work itself out. Um, and I thought, in fact, I think what happens here is that human love is often projected into an ideal, and that ideal is placed on God. And, and so when people say God is love, actually what they're saying is love is God. <clears throat> so, um, but what happens is that when love is God, it's an idea. God is not personal. And it requires a personal being to be loving. You cannot just have the idea of love. <clears throat> um, it can... All you can do is assimilate, but you can't transform. So it, in this kind of purity without love, it remains in cold, dead orthodoxy. It can make people assimilate into a certain moral framework, but it can't transform them. If you have love without purity, without morality, or without holiness, you can assimilate, but you can't transform into cultural values, a new set of moral values. Um, <clears throat> and so if God is truly personal, we don't need to take a human idea of love and move it to the nth degree and make it an ideal. Rather, if God is truly personal, we need to hear from him what love is and then assimilate our understanding of loving relationships <coughs> to him. You see what I mean by that? So we can't build a tower of Babel up to God. We need for him to reveal himself and come down to Mount Sinai. Tim Keller, in The Reason for God, this is so disordered, I just decided not to print off my quotes. I was like, I'm just going to read them. Saves me time. Doesn't save me time right now, but it saved me time earlier. <clears throat> um, but Tim Keller is like, you know, if you want to say that, uh, so he, he's talking in Reason for God about, you know, I believe in a loving God, and the Christian God is not a, a loving God for variety of reasons he said you know i used to believe the same thing and and think well god must be love in a variety of religions and philosophies he said but as he discovered it was not let me quote him <clears throat> from reason for god i found no other religious text outside of the bible that said god created the world out of love and delight most ancient pagan religions believed the world was created through struggles and violent battles between opposing gods and supernatural forces. I turned to look more closely at Buddhism, the religion I liked best at the time, 
However, despite its great emphasis on selflessness and detached service to others, Buddhism did not believe in a personal God at all, and love is the action of a person. He does talk about Islam later on and says that while there can be beneficence, it's not personal. There's not a relationship, as the Bible constantly says that God is a lover. God is like a spouse. God is like a faithful spouse. And they were offended by how personal God is in the Christian faith. And so <clears throat> the Bible points in a different direction. So we have to think, well, what is defined when it says God is love? Um, <clears throat> well, it defines God as pure and as loving, as ordered, morally ordered, and relational. And I want to talk about how that is. And, and so uh, the Bible claims that in Jesus Christ, we are made into a new humanity. That film pointed to a new humanity through in an uninhibited freedom, individualistic freedom, finding our own voice. But this is saying, no, only through Jesus are we made into a new humanity. And this new humanity is where we will experience God's love. So it's not through human knowledge or human will or human desire, but through what God causes internally, transforming one heart at a time into a renewed community and to a renewed creation, a renewed humanity. And so this is how we are supposed to demonstrate and experience the love of God. So I want to look out, look at uh, Ephesians 3. Does anyone have any questions so far? Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go through this passage, Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, and I'm going to talk about it as I go before I turn to thinking about how it works out. So I want to look at the what and the why in this and then the how afterwards. Okay, so we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's prayer. Now, this is a famous prayer. Um, the, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. Passage that you may be familiar with if you're familiar with the Bible. And But this prayer happens in a crescendo in this letter. Um, <clears throat> Paul's letters are always theological and then ethical, indicative and then imperative, the message and then the method. It always works like that. So we know what God has accomplished, and therefore this is how we are empowered to live in this way. It's not that we need to be ethical in order to have the, the love of God. It's that the God loves us, therefore this is the pattern. And so Paul is praying at this moment, at the end of chapter three, there's six chapters at the end of chapter three, it's this crescendo where he wanting, he's so deeply wanting these new Christians or these potential Christians to understand what he has just explained, what God has done for humanity. And he says, in fact, through Jesus, he has removed the dividing wall and has made you into a new humanity. So uh, let's listen to him as he, as he says this prayer in what this new humanity, how this, the mechanism of this new humanity. Okay. <clears throat> For this reason, so he's just explained what God has accomplished. 
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, I'm going to stop there. Uh, a couple of things. First, he's talking about God as the creator. Okay. Now, he's referring to the Father, but he's saying the Father <coughs> of all. Okay. So he's speaking about the creator. So people who are raised Hindu, Baha'i, Muslim, atheist, Jewish, Christian, they all have the same origin, the creator. Uh, so it's this God is not impersonal. It's not the Big Bang. It's not the first cause. It's not the great being. Um, it's personal. And because God is personal, not just the title creator, he calls this creator father, a personal attribute or personal nomenclature. Um, because Israel had the God of their fathers. And so God is, in a sense, birthed them as a people, as a nation. And so he was the father of the fathers. In fact, in this passage, it says he's the father from whom all fatherhood derives. But uh, I like where uh, the father whom all nations derive, which is the point he's trying to drive at. And so, <clears throat> and then most clearly, Jesus says that he is the son who brings us to the father. Only one, uh, you only come to the father, but through me. And that those who come to Jesus can call God father. So God is the creator of all people, whether they know him or not, love him or not. And yet he's also personal. So he's infinite and he's personal. Uh, so I want us to hold on to that. that that's who Paul is addressing. Uh, and so in light of him talking about how we are being called into a new humanity, he's not talking about how God is creating a new tribal group, a little subset, a little interest group, a little political entity. But rather, he's creating that the creator of all has revealed himself as personal, and he's creating a new humanity. <clears throat> okay, so Paul prays, um, <clears throat> continues his prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's his first part of his prayer. Um, so Paul is praying. It's interesting that he, I don't know if you've ever paused on this, if you've ever read it, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Uh, he's praying that from God's power, from his majesty, expressed by a spirit, spirit that we might be ready to receive Jesus. It's a very, very powerful expression. So it's a far cry from thinking Jesus as a good man or a wise man who has offered a moral philosophy that we may want to follow or Jesus as your friend. But that, um, that for Jesus to come, it needs all of God's power to prepare you. Without God's power, we are crushed by his very presence. That's what Paul is saying. You don't want to be in God's presence without Jesus. And so God is going to make you ready. 
Because whenever in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, whenever people came before God, what did they do? They always collapsed, involuntarily collapsed. They felt that they were going to be crushed, annihilated. Uh, in one way that they realize, they recognize that they're but creatures. This is the almighty creator of all the cosmos. And I'm before them and in, um, invariably I collapse. I'm but a creature. And so they recognize that God is all powerful. But they also collapse because they recognize that this God is all good. You know, Isaiah collapses and says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a culture of unclean lips. He realizes how he cannot even stand before God, that standing before God's justice, he feels that he must collapse and be crushed if God is not merciful to him. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting is that Isaiah feels examined without there being a proclamation. There's not a proclamation of judgment on Isaiah. He instantly knows in his inner, inner being. There's no wagging of the finger, but because of God in his pureness and in his power, collapse. That's the picture. Um, <clears throat> and so Paul is praying that they receive God's spirit to sustain them to receive Jesus, to receive the power of Jesus, that they are going to receive God himself in their hearts. Now, we read this to receive Jesus in your heart. People pray like you need to receive Jesus in your heart. Don't think heart means emotion or your affections. Think of it as like there is a throne in the middle of your very being and you've been sitting on it for a long time. And he's saying, no, Jesus is going to come and sit on the throne and he's going to be your new king. He's going to be your navigator. He's going to direct you. He's going to lead you. Uh, and so the heart is welcoming Jesus, welcoming God himself into our very being, maybe even deeper in the, in the recesses than we even know or imagine. <clears throat> and so Jesus enters so that we might be restored to this relationship with this personal God, but also this holy God. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so the spirit comes. Um, and what the spirit comes is not just preparing good, goodwill, but applying what has been accomplished on the cross. That's what Paul's talking about. What God has accomplished on the cross in Jesus, he's applying so that you can be ready to receive this, um, to receive Jesus. Then he continues. Um, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So it's a great promise. So the first prayer is that you might be prepared for Jesus to come. But when Jesus comes, he says, okay, now that, now that the Spirit has come and prepared you, uh, he says rooted and established, just like rooted like a tree, established like a building. So you're being rooted and built up by love. Okay. Once you've been stabilized, now, if you gather everyone that's a Christian around you 
maybe then you can begin to understand how vast God's love is. So it's not an individualistic way. It's a corporate way that they understand the love of God. The vastness of the love of God is experienced not just individually, but corporately. This is a corporate prayer. Um, Let's see. Okay. Um, So this is what Paul has prayed. Okay, he's praying that they will receive power from God, that they may experience the purity and the love of God he has for his the individual and how he wants to make them into something new, into a new relationship with others. Um, Why is he doing this? He wants them to become a new humanity, a demonstration of what God is doing in the world so that others may taste and see that the Lord is good that they may actually taste that God loves them through their experience of the love that Christians have for one another. That's what Paul's praying. That's what Paul's hoping for. That's what we should hope for. Now, when Adam and Eve, they embody all of humanity, sinned, they brought in disorder, uh, in this disordered relationships. So this is the very opposite of a new humanity. The Old humanity, when humanity was created, Adam and Eve were to love one another, to help one another, to work together, to build culture. But very quickly, they, they, um, they created disorder. And what happens is they, they end up blaming. They start hiding. They start blaming. They start striving against one another. And they introduce toil. This is the experience of life without God's transformation. <clears throat> so this is what they were experiencing. They were experiencing this disorder. But through Jesus, they are now being called into this new humanity to not to experience what God is doing them individually, which now God wants to do in them corporately. He's calling them together to, ex- to exhibit their love for one another to experience the love of God that love the, the love of God has for them through their neighbor. And so Paul very quickly says, therefore be humble, stop stealing, work with your hands and give generously to the poor, respect one another. So he's developing this ethical treatise for a new humanity based upon what Christ has done in each person and in the group. This is what should embody God's people. I'll talk more about that, but that is why God is doing it. So it's very, it's the same vision of a new humanity and as it is in heaven, that film, but with a very different way about it. It's not just one finding one's own voice and finding one's own way and feeling that uninhibited freedom will create harmony, but rather that we need, we need to receive power that we might be transformed by God's purity so that we might love each other purely. Um, I'll talk about that more in just a minute. So how how is this to be expressed? How does this work out? Uh, I want to talk about how this impacts us individually in relationship to God and how that is supposed to be fed out into one and and into other relationships, particularly relationships with Christian brothers and sisters. What is it supposed to look like? What is it supposed to taste like? What is it supposed to be experienced like? How might it not just be pure 
but how might it also be loving? How might it be moral, but also personal? Because that's what we're longing for. That's what people are longing for. This is what God gives us. How might we experience that? So uh, Schaefer, he talks about this in a, he looks funny, but we love him, right? We love him. We love him. Um, uh, I'm going to explain how he deals with this uh, in his book, True Spirituality. At the very end of his book, he has two chapters called Substantial Healing in Personal Relationships and Substantial Healing in the Church. He calls it substantial, not total. So we should not expect perfection until the new heavens and the new earth. But through Jesus at work in each of us, corporately, we should experience substantial healing. How many can of us say church at church in community, I experienced substantial healing. <clears throat> I'm also going to be talking about C.S. Lewis. So my quota, <laughs> C.S. Lewis quota. So um, Schaefer describes um, that he's saying that God himself, um, how he deals with us as individuals is as persons. He deals with us as God is in himself and who he made us to be. Um, <clears throat> so God is personal and God is relational. I remember going downtown um, I went to these pub chats and they were asking, does God exist? And they were all atheists except me. And I was invited by an atheist to come because he likes my lectures. So I went down there and they're all quoting Bertrand Russell and Nietzsche and Carl Sagan and just making funny statements about how stupid Christians were. And I laughed because they were witty, um, even though I disagreed with them. And this guy, like, and then we had a break to get a beer or whatever. And he said, Clark, you haven't said anything. And I was like, they're all just platforming. They're all soapboxing. They're not actually in discussion. And uh, so when we got back, to his credit, he was the facilitator, said, you know what? We've been talking about, does God exist? And you know, there are people who believe that God exists. And uh, many of us don't, but there are people. And so, uh, so we should just be mindful of that. And one person was like, well, if there's someone who believes in God, they should tell us why they believe in God. Well, that was me. <laughs> but it's interesting i've always answered that question in different ways depending on the moment and maybe it was a couple of beers i'm not sure but i said you know what uh because sometimes i can give reasons but i said you know what when i when i look in the mirror i think i'm not an accident i'm not a cog in the machine i'm a person the universe must be created by someone personal otherwise it makes no sense and everyone was quiet and the conversation turned and we started talking about is God personal? What would this mean? And it started in a very interesting direction to one guy's like, you know, my father was a hateful Christian. Therefore all Christians are dumb. And then it turned returned to the soapbox. But for one, like five minutes, it was uneasy territory for many people, but we have to ask, why are we persons? Are we ghosts in a machine? Is consciousness an accident? I'd say no. That, um, and so the Bible reveals that God is personal. But God is not just a person. God is, uh, the Christian would say, three persons in unity as one. And so God is also relational. God exists in and of himself, but he's relational. We don't exist in the same way. 
but God in himself is personal and relational. Um, and so, uh, so when God created creation, he created everything, but he made humanity. He made each one of you distinct. We are conscious animals that are aware of one another, aware of meaning, even if we may not be sure what that means. And we are in need of one another to create. We can create great damage, but we can also create great beauty together. That our personhood is tied to God who made us like him. So consciousness is not an evolutionary accident. It is part and parcel of the nature of God. And we have been made to be like him. But what it also means to be personal is that that our personality is not just personhood. It's tied to moral character. So God's personhood in relation, perfect relationship is a moral relationship. It's his character. So his moral character is defined by kindness, generosity, patience, forbearing, love. These are moral characteristics of how God relates. And so when we are persons, relating to one another is meant to be moral. So it's not just we love out of desire or out of animal instinct, but out of a moral framework. That's when it's loving. And so in this way, we are to relate to God in in a moral way, but also to one another. And so this is how God relates to us. He doesn't relate to us just mechanically as its or as objects, but as persons that he desires to relate to him lovingly and morally. But there is a distinction. God is not like us. We are like God, but God is not like us. There is a creator creation or creature distinction. And so Schaefer would refer to that as a legal order. Um, I might just call it order, (laughs) but he likes to call it legal order. That creatures are contingent on God who is independent. God can exist without us in completeness, but we cannot exist without him. We are dependent on him in his knowledge, on his power, on his love, on his being. On his very breath, on his very word, we are sustained. And so this legal order, this distinction shows up not just between God and humanity, but even in, in creation. We see parent, ch- children, employer, employee, uh, captain on a team, the team. There's a goodness to this legal order. And this legal order does not prohibit personal relationship. It often does, but it doesn't, by definition, prohibit. So the creator can relate to his creatures, even though it's in this legal relationship as personal, as loving. The problem is, is that we disrupted this legal order, this holy order, maybe another way of putting it, is that we forgot the distinction between creator and creature. And we put ourselves on the throne. We made ourselves to be like God in our own way. So Adam and Eve were called to be like God, but they were supposed to be like God in God's way. But what they did is that they wanted to become like God in their way. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Uh, And so it disrupts this legal order, but also disrupts the personal relationship. It disrupts purity. It disrupts love. So in Labrie, we talk about seven separations. 
um, that sin, what we call sin, this disruption of sin, has caused, it separated God from humanity, humanity from God. It separated even humanity, the human from themselves. Psychologically, it has removed even us from our bodies that age, decay, disease, and die. Um, human, humans are separated from other humans. They strive, they devour one another, gnashing of teeth. In fact, um, hell is referred to as gnashing of teeth. Well, this is actually a term that is referred to in the Old Testament as when war, nations wage war against other <laughs> nations. They gnash teeth. And so hell is basically removing purity and love and maintaining the human relationship. That's the experience. That's why it's hellish. And so this sin has caused us to devour one another. Paul's like, don't devour one another. Don't strive against each other. Don't compete. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Another separation, and I'm, I'm emphasizing that because I'm going to come back to that. There's also the separation between humanity and nature and nature and humanity. So these are the separations, and none of these can be restored unless all of them are restored at once. And none of these we can restore in our own power. Okay. I cannot restore my relationship with you on my own power. We might be nice to each other, but we can't have transformative, loving, pure relationship. And so Paul... Um, says this is can only be accomplished through Jesus. And he accomplishes that on the cross. And this is what reconciles us into a new humanity, restores us back into the garden, as it were, to start again this cultural project that God has for humanity. Um, and so he calls it a new humanity or even a new creation. And so these separations have been reconciled through Jesus on the cross. And so the whole letter of the Ephesians is talking about what does this reconciliation of love look like in relationship. But right now I'm talking about how God is reconciling us individually to himself and what that might mean to our relationships. So when we enter into, uh, when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus, what's happening is that creator creature disruption, that legal disruption is now being reconciled. We now know that we are a creature before a creator, but God does not only relate to us legally. God also relates to us personally. And this is often missed in the church. We think it's only a legal exchange. Believe in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Now go. But God is relating to us personally, not even primarily legally. He does it through a legal but it's not primarily legal. It's primarily personal. He wants us. He wants to relate to us morally. He wants to relate to us lovingly. And so when we, because when we enter into that forgiveness through Jesus, we are being restored into his divine fellowship. We're being restored into that loving, eternal, moral relationship. Not just once, but continuously we're being restored, reconciled, restored, restored, restored. Uh, Schaefer would call it moment by moment forgiveness. Again, we're reminded, come back to me. I love you. Come back to me. <clears throat> and so there's this conviction that we receive that we might walk into new life, into perfect moral relationship with him. Um, and so Jesus comes 
as again, not as a moral philosopher, not as even a buddy, but as the one who has the power to transform us from within. That's the whole point. <clears throat> he dwells within us so that we might be restored in his love, that we might, in fact, be restored to full humanity. Uh, Hendrik Macher started Dutch Libri, or at least influenced it. He has one of my favorite quotes of all time. Christ did not come to make us Christians. Christ did not come to make us Christians. He came to make us fully human. Okay. Who said that? Hendrik Macher. <clears throat> he was friends with Francis Schaeffer, taught at the Free University in the Netherlands. What this means is to be moral is to be full. To be moral is to be joyful. To be moral is to be loving. It is to, morality should be beautiful. Now, the process can be painful because we are not quite there yet. It's a process of becoming more and more ourselves, more and more who God made us to be. The more we become like Christ, the more I become Clark. I'm not going to look like Donna. The closer we get to Christ, the more distinct and unique we become. She's so thankful for that. You're not going to be anything like me. But the process is painful because God wants to dwell with us. I love this metaphor that C.S. Lewis draws out, and it's probably one that you know or familiar with. But I, he gets it from George MacDonald. You like George MacDonald. Um, I think he really draws out Paul's prayer in a wonderful way of what it means for what God is doing in us individually. Um, <clears throat> so he says, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's beautiful that we're being transformed. We wanted just to be a cottage, but God wants to dwell with us in a palace. Beautiful. That's what Paul is praying that we recognize that God wants to dwell in us as palaces. But this is not just an individual exercise. It's, um, it's also supposed to be a corporate one. So what God is doing in us individually is supposed to feed out into our relationships. And so how God relates to us as a person um, in, or personally and morally is how we are to relate to one another. How God relates to us is how we are to relate to one another. <clears throat> so Paul says, you should love as Jesus has loved you. Well, that's a high order. Now, I want to say there's something distinct because I can't be Jesus. I can't atone for your sins. I can't atone for anyone's sins. I have enough on my shoulders. <laughs> okay. I'm not perfect. 
Jesus is one with the creator. So there's a legal distinction that I can't overcome for you. We are on equal playing field. And so we cannot pick up what Jesus has done for us and then pick it up in our own power or love in our own power. We have to love in the power that God gives us in Jesus for one another. Um, so that means that it's only upon the basis of what Jesus has done for the individual on the cross that it might be expressed through us in our love for one another. Our relationship of love and morality toward one another is supposed to be based upon what Jesus is doing in us. So first, that means it's not going to be like a creator creature, but we are fellow creatures. You and I are all creatures together. Uh, Acts 17 and Ephesians 3 talks about, uh, in Acts 17, it says, from one man all came. All the nations came. Uh, and so Schaefer would talk about that as like, we can't talk about tribalism, racism, nationalism. We are all creatures, the same. We are all equal in dignity. Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, from the father of all nations. Um, <clears throat> whether they know him or not, all are from the creator and made in the image of God. So that means first and foremost, even if you see someone who is not a Christian, you say they are made in the image of God. Glory to God. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what you think of. Doesn't it feel like if you are disgusted or hateful of them, they are made in God's image. And hating them is hating what God made. Okay? That's the importance of it. And C.S. Lewis says that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. That's that equality. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, well, Lewis says, well, let's expand this. He loves using hyperbole. He's like, well, to love your neighbor as yourself means you have to love your enemy because your enemy is your neighbor. Um, and now you have to understand, he wrote this right after World War II. He goes, so am I telling you that the Jewish person needs to love the Gestapo? He goes, no, I'm not saying that I could do it. I'm not sure anyone could do it, but he goes, I'm not inventing my own ideas. This is what Christianity is. This is what Jesus said. So we need to consider what does it mean to love our enemy? Um, and how are we to love them to this extent? And he goes, you know, there might be a couple of ways for us to approach it. First, let's not do advanced calculus. Let's just start with basic addition. He goes, why don't you just forgive your husband or your wife? Why don't you just forgive your child? Why don't you just forgive your boss or your friend? Let's start there. That's going to be hard enough as it is. Let's build up some forgiveness muscles. He doesn't say that. He's much too poetic. I said that. <clears throat> but we need to treat them as persons. He says uh, not only should we love our enemy through basic addition or uh, try to start basically, he says we might also thinking about loving our enemy uh, by understanding that we need to love them as ourself. What does it mean to love ourselves? Uh, he says, you know, I don't like myself sometimes. In fact, I don't like myself a lot. And when I like myself a lot, that's when I'm a really poor chap. <laughs> he says, so loving your enemy doesn't mean that you're liking them or you're fond of them. In fact, you can outright hate what they've done. He says, you can hate the sin, but you might need to love the sin. Now, 
I've heard this before and people have made fun of it. I didn't realize that he wrote about this. And so this is his quote, and I think it's really wonderful. For a long time, and you may know C.S. Lewis was an atheist, became a Christian later in his life. For a long time, I used to think that this, a silly, straw-splitting distinction, how could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. Because I love myself, but I hate what I do a lot of times. <laughs> um, he goes, so I don't need to be fond of them or like them, but I need to love them. I need to love them as I love myself. He goes, but what does it mean to love them? He goes, of course, it doesn't mean you need to condone their badness or the harm they've caused or why they might be your enemy. Doesn't mean that you cannot seek justice. He goes, you can seek justice against the trespass and still love them as a person. Um, this is, in fact, what Jesus does with us. He doesn't let the trespass pass, but he loves us as a person. He said, but we can do this most concretely by seeking the good of the other. Um, let's see if I can find this quote. I can't find it. So he says that when I look at myself, when I see that I have sinned against someone or when I've really felt terrible about what I've done and what I've thought, what I've said, what I've acted, he goes, what I hate is I hate the sin, but I long for me to become better. I long for me to become good. Um, <clears throat> he says, here it is. Um, so um, <clears throat> not one. So he says that you can, you can uh, be against them legally or justicely, but not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is in any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. So think about that. We desire that when Jesus comes, he wants to make us fully human. He loves us while we are still yet enemies and reconciles us to himself, not to become more morally religious, but become fully human, moral and loving with one another. Uh, and Schaefer says that this becomes possible for your enemy or any other on the basis of what Jesus has done. That as a Christian, we desire that these people, even our enemies, might be renewed in Jesus, that they might become who God wanted them to be. Uh, my father was a pretty abusive man, and I think about, uh, but he became a Christian late in his life, uh, I believe, and I'll see him in heaven, and I'll just have a laugh at how he has become all that he should have become, what I had hoped he should have become in the first place, and I will rejoice, and he'll probably rejoice that I'm no longer like I was, <laughs> if I'm honest, <clears throat> but I don't see myself so well. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that when we, uh, that when Christians, uh, he goes, that worldly love is different from Christian love, what he calls Christian charity. Uh, and sometimes we think of Christian charity as the duty to love, whether we like the person or not. Um, and, he, and he talks about the distinction between worldly love and Christian love. 
what she calls charity. Um, <clears throat> the worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. What he's saying is that according to worldly love, you like the people that you, you love the people that you like. But the Christian in choosing to love even people they don't like, start finding that they like the person that they couldn't even imagine liking in the first place because they have placed their heart and their love on them in a pure and loving way. <clears throat> Schaefer even gives us another angle. So, um, so loving our neighbor as ourselves, which should be just basic addition of forgiving the simplest people, treating them as cre fellow creatures, uh, loving them, but not loving their sin. Schaefer gives us another angle how we might demonstrate the love of God through Jesus toward others. And, uh, and he talks about us when we have harmed or hurt someone else, when we have sinned against another. He goes, this is the moment where you can demonstrate the power of God in your life so that they might believe that God is personal and loving and true. So he says, based on Jesus who humbled himself, even though he didn't need to, we should humble ourselves when, especially when we have wronged somebody. But how hard it is to confess or seek restoration from someone that we have harmed. While it may be painful, Schaefer says, consider what Jesus bore so that we might be reconciled. The least we can do is bear the pain of trying to reconcile when we have harmed another. He says that we should not, while it can be painful, it will not crush us. It won't crush us because our dignity does not rest on that relationship. It rests on what God has accomplished in us through Jesus. So Schaefer says, um, <clears throat> let's see if I can find this. At least I wrote it down. Um, so he's saying that we can't just love people abstractly because nothing is more enjoyable. I think it was Dostoevsky who said that I love humanity. What I hate is people. As soon as they slurp their soup. Uh, my son was slurping soup right before I got over here. And I was thinking and laughing about that and also not laughing. <laughs> Stop slurping. <laughs> um, but it's so easy to love humanity until the individual stands right in front of us. And so Schaefer says Christianity or Christians Christianity is not to love in abstraction, but to love the individual who stands before me in a person-to-person -person relationship. <coughs> he must never be faceless to me, or I am denying everything I say I believe. This concept will always involve some cost. It is not a cheap thing, because we live in a fallen world, and we ourselves are fallen. It's difficult, but this is where the actual claims are proven. That when we have wronged somebody, whether they know God or not, we come to them in confession and desire of reconciliation because our dignity rests in Jesus. That's the moment when we witness to his power. Has Jesus really, really accomplished something in me 
or is it just a moral philosophy that helps me feel better about myself? He says that human um, culture um, are desiring to see that there's a reality to the personal and to the moral. He, and he calls it communication, this ability that there, there, there can be real communication between us and not just two ghosts in a machine trying to compete for resources. This is communication. The men of the modern world are asking whether personality is real, whether communication is real, whether it has meaning. We Christians can talk until we are blue in the face, but it will all be meaningless unless we exhibit communication. When, as a Christian, I stand before a man and say, I am sorry, this is not only legally right and pleasing to God, but it is true communication on a highly personal level. In this setting, the human race is human. <clears throat> he says that when we do this, if we start confessing our sins um, to, to other people, then it becomes a witness of what God is doing. It becomes a witness that, that God is who he says he is. Now, if this is true, how the Christian is supposed to be to all relationships, how much more so should it be in the church? How much more so if we claim the same God, if we claim the same Savior, if we claim the same Spirit? And so Paul is like, you are one Spirit, one Lord, one Father, one God. You need to find unity because you're a new humanity. So you need to love one another. So where this should be most clear in the world as a witness to what God is doing in us, his love and his purity should be demonstrated among Christians. And so it is to be ordered and pure, so we can have different interests, different personalities, different race, language. Um, it doesn't have to be Western or Democratic, for instance. Um, <clears throat> despite all those differences, can Christians really be united in the love of Christ, heart to heart, person to person, in their spirit? I remember um, a friend of mine, he was a Canadian livery worker. He said he got really embarrassed because one, he doesn't like flying and he takes lots of medication when he flies. And so he's just like, but uh, he was flying and there was this African woman in front of him and saw him. And, uh, and I don't know if he was reading a Christian book or whatever. And she's like, are you a Christian? Like on the plane. And he's like, Ooh. and she's like, me too. I am your sister. <laughs> he was like, oh. <laughs> but I was like, that's awesome. It fully, she fully understood what it meant to be at one with him, to be in relationship to him. How little we know that in our Western culture, how more we need it to be in demonstration. <clears throat> so this is where it should be most evident. So Paul is at pains that the church at Christians should demonstrate this new humanity so that those who are lost might be restored to that humanity, might be restored to that community. People long for this type of fellowship. And during COVID, I saw people were not only isolated, but they were, they, their, their isolation took a whole new timber. They didn't have their luxuries. They didn't have and lots of mental health issues have occurred because of it. But people longing for that relationships at the bar, 
at meetup groups, at philosophy groups, at work or in play among friends and family, and it always seems to fall short, even marriage, sometimes especially marriage. <laughs> um, but Christians, when people come into the midst of Christians, they should see people not being perfect, but being willing to forgive and to confess to one another, to be restoring one another, to aiding one another. That if God truly exists, if God's truly who he says he is, in power and in love, it should be expressed and exhibited and experienced in God's people. For God's people and for the world to see. Schaefer follows Paul's metaphor and says that, um, that the body of believers are actually, we, are, we call them the body of believers because it's the church, Christian brothers and sisters are the body of Christ. We are not the physical resurrected body of Christ, that is his, but metaphysically we are united in some metaphysical spiritual way that we are united to him. You know, John 13, 35, he says, they cannot know me except by your love. If we aren't not loving one another, how can they know Jesus? And so Schaefer says in 358, <clears throat> we, think our uh, we think our thoughts and then we convey our thoughts to the external world through our bodies. Our physical body is the point of communication with the external world. And this is the way we affect the world. So that's the individual. So the church, as the body of Jesus Christ, is called to be the means whereby Jesus may be exhibited and whereby he acts in this external world until he comes again. So often we think that people need to look for Jesus elsewhere, but they should be able to come into our midst and say, Jesus is here. We are his body. We're a lot of toes in here, but that's okay. <laughs> That was a bad joke, but okay. <clears throat> I'm trying. <clears throat> um, and so the Christian community needs to, you know, uh, one thing that Schaefer really wants the church to do, he wants, he says the Christian needs to be the demonstration of the existence of God. That we need to be open-handed and looking to God at work in the normal way of working through us so that people might know him. But he says that we also should know this as a body, as a Christian community. That when people look at Christian community, they should not be able to ex easily explain away at what is at work. Is it just attractive musicians? Is it just charismatic speakers? Is it level ground coffee? Um, is it good networks? Um, let me read uh, what Schaefer has here. I'm, I'm approaching the end here. <clears throat> if the church does not show forth the supernatural in our generation, what will? The Lord's work done in the Lord's way does not relate only to the message but also relates also to the method. There must be something the world cannot explain away by the world's methods or by applied psychology. And I'm not at all speaking here of external special manifestations of the Holy Spirit. I am thinking of the normal and universal promise to the church concerning the work of the Spirit. 
that when they see Christians acting together, they don't think it's just psychological well-being, uh, the therapeutic work of prayer or sociology or psychology, but that there's something transformative happening in these people, that they're becoming mature, that they're becoming human, and that they're watching out for one another. And if we do not live this way, Schaefer says, children who grow up in a Christian home, many children in a Christian home have been lost because they have not seen the demonstration of God's love in the church. And I cannot tell you how many people who have come, children of pastors, children of missionaries, children of church leaders who have come to Labrie because they have not experienced the love of Christ in the church. <clears throat> And so there should be real beauty and real love. So let me conclude by saying, I was saying that when we want to think about experiencing the love of God, we often think of individualistic and emotional way. That is fair. But the way that we receive that is not um, huddling off to the side. We may have that experience with God in a special way. We may, but that is not the primary means of how God communicates himself or communicates his love to us. His primary way is through his people who is transforming us and transforming them into, into uh, uh, a new humanity. And I, and I pointed out this movie that there's two ways that obstruct the love of God. A church that wants to be pure in doctrine and truth and message immorality, but there's no love. Other churches, though, are just as problematic. They want there to be love, but there is no morals or there's no standards outside of what is selective or culturally relevant or culturally popular, but that will fade away with the zeitgeist, and God also is not personal there. It is the idea of what love is in a cultural way rather than what God is communicating but rather that God has communicated his love through purity and through personhood to us individually, corporately, and to the world through his son, Jesus. And we need to open ourselves up to allowing God to be working us moment by moment on the basis of what Jesus has done so that people might taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just people out there, that we ourselves might taste and see as we share that love with one another. So that's my talk. Um, uh, so now we have time for uh, <clears throat> questions, discussion. Uh, we have about 30 minutes or so. Um, yes, you wanna ask a question? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yes, oh yeah. I have two connected to each other. So you mentioned about those people, especially children of um, Christians, uh, who did experience trauma with church people. Um, it's, it leads to crisis in their religion and their relations in God, with God and their understanding of God. What would you recommend? What would you say to those people who are wounded by the church? And also what you can recommend people who try to serve those people, how okay. to approach them? 
okay, so the question is that the people, the example I talked about children who grow up in a church, they do not experience love uh, and they leave it as a result of that. What would you recommend? What, uh, how would I approach them and how would you, how would I recommend others to approach them? Yeah. One, I, uh, I have deep sorrow um, to know how to even answer this question because uh, it depends on how deeply hurt they are. And sometimes I see there's no coming back for some. I, oh, and so I just pray. I just pray because I know God can restore them. Um, this one young woman who wrote me what she wrote about her narcissistic father, she married a man who has become a Christian later in his life with a very different experience. And he has been loving her with an undying love out of his love for Jesus. And she is being transformed by that. But it's so hard because her understanding of Jesus, cross, uh, sin, all that is so jumbled and messed up and ugly. Uh, and that's where I find it so difficult because it's better to grow up in a home that is that has no religious symbols, no religious language, so that when they see it, it's like something brand new. But when they have had it, around their neck as a huge weight becomes so difficult for them to see it in a new way. So that they might experience love from someone else who truly loves Jesus. Um, and so some people will come to Labrie and experience a taste of some supernaturally restored relationship that, that we're seeking and that God has been very faithful to us as we stumble along, but that has been renewing. And so if they can have the experience of Christian community that's devoted to it. I think that what we shouldn't do is just to say, well, I just need to love them and not mention Christianity at all. But it becomes so difficult uh, because you don't want to start using the language. And sometimes I think as Christians, we need to start finding new language of expressing the gospel rather than just the trope answers that we've received. I don't know if trope is even the right word, but just the words that, the, the, the kind of words that we've always used. We need to learn how to use new language to express what God has done so that we might treat it in a new angle or through a story. Um, but uh, we don't want to be so, and I've been guilty of this, people so hurt by the church that I've tried to almost pretend to be just a good person, rather than saying, no, I just need to be a Christian that they're frustrated with. And it's going to put me, you know, Jesus uh, was unashamed of associating himself with a lot of people who misrepresented him. And yet he was able to show new power and new teaching. So I pray that that's something that we can do. Anyone who wants, who needs to be equipped to help people be recovered from that, maybe have a new way of thinking, a new, um, uh, and a real, a real openness to God being at work in them so that they might actually taste the reality of God rather than just the message of God. Something like that. Anyone else have any ideas about that? Maybe someone's been helped. Or is there any other question? I mean, just to comment on that. Um, you know, the way I've, I've approached that is just, like, you're, like you've been saying, just show them God's love. And that you know, shows itself through hospitality, through love. As long as they know I'm a Christian, you know, and I can 
you know, Jesus is so infused with my life that it comes up in normal conversation. So like, oh yeah. And, and I had this experience with um, a guy, I'm from Seattle-ish. Uh, and I was, um, I met a guy there who was very much an atheist, really into law of attraction, uh, a sort of new age belief. And uh, come to find out he really didn't like Christians like at all. Uh, and this was right when, in fact, we met before I came back to Jesus, and so we had established a friendship on a more secular level, uh, but when Jesus came back into my life, and I was like, okay, what does this even mean for me? Mm. I had a background in it. Um, he's been able to actually see that growth, and um, a year after I'd been a Christian, we ended up uh, getting a, a, a townhouse together, sharing a flat, and uh, through that, he really got to see me he got to see christ through me and in me and how i lived it out and um he's, he's still not a christian he's still law of attraction but he has a much better understanding and he's mm. expressed that to me saying like you are nothing like what i thought a christian was mm. and so i think for me it has to do with patience being involved in people's lives and demonstrating what jesus's love is like instead of preaching at people or telling them what they should believe, why they should believe. That's helpful for some people searching for those answers, but the most powerful witness is action. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the best, the best response is action, especially when we live, we want to live lives of integrity before God so that God might produce his fruit through us rather not even just acting on his behalf or what we think his love is but that God might demonstrate his love through us in the way that we act in faithfulness. But yes, action is entirely. That's, that's really wonderful that this person was moved, uh, even by inches. Sometimes it's okay. Um, and we never know, like, uh, in my own life, and as, as maybe many of you, but my life was moved toward Christ by many different people. And I could tell my story, and I could tell it in a different way because of all the different people that actually spoke into my life in different ways until it became glaring. Um, and so it was never just that one moment. It was all those little moments that guided me onto this moment. So thank you. Yes. Another part of an answer yes. to that question is to trust that God will provide. Mm. I, as a young man, was one of those people who really didn't like Christians <laughs> and avoided them. But had encounters, despite my avoidance, with some pretty genuine people, genuine Christians, mm. and they had a profound effect on me mm. over time. That's awesome. No, thank you. So you, you, you talked about prayer. But there's also that confidence that God will provide. Mm -hmm. And I think you can assure someone that God will provide mm -hmm. if, if they're open. If they're open to meeting the Christians who love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Greg. Yeah, I was going to say uh, quickly that uh, I think Tom Wright puts it really you're surprised I'm quoting him, I know. <laughs> he puts it really succinctly. You know, he says, our, basically, our calling in life is to be a right angle mirror reflecting God's love into the world. Mm -hmm. Good. We're supposed to be a right angle 
reflecting right. God into yeah. the world. Yeah, right angle mirror, God's love, and we reflect God's love into the world. Yeah, and reflecting that is that we need to be, you know, one, recognizing that he's the son. We're the mirror in yeah. one sense. Yeah. Uh, we're not so passive, but we need to be open to God. Um, but also that we need to be turned at the right angle so that God might be reflected correctly. Um, but, but we also have an active part. Francis Schaeffer talks about active passivity. Mm-hmm. We want God, we don't want to work on God's behalf, but we don't want to just, you know, um, be a welcome mat for Jesus or just sit in our corner and pray, but never take a walk outside, as it were. But never we're not take, reflecting if we're not. Never take chances. If we're not doing it. That's right. Don't light, don't. Don't put your mirror under a, a light bushel, right? Or a bushel. Well, I like thinking with basically something of a theistic evolutionist. You know, I think what is it, what does evolution tell us? It's survival of the fittest. Mm. It's all about the self. Mm. You know, so why on earth do I care about somebody over in Africa? You know, or why, you know, or some other parts of the world like I have no connection, I'm never gonna see. Mm. You know, why do I care? You know, and it's just because because God loves us. And, and we and we can take God's love and it becomes part of who we are. You know, like was it Psalm 37, 4 said, delight the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Right. Well, the important thing there is that God has revealed, God has communicated himself to us in space and time. Mm-hmm. He hasn't just allowed this to be a consciousness that has evolved into an, a divine awareness, but that he has actually communicated himself in specific ways at specific times and events throughout history and preeminently through his son, Jesus. Uh, and so, so there is a bit of difference there, but, it, but, it's, but it's right that what is God's love? It's not just something that we have evolved into, but it's something that God has declared and made happen because he's intervened into time in and space. Yeah, and has intervened into our hearts in time and space as well. That's good. Because yeah, if it's just a materialistic world and we're nothing but an odd chance of cause and effect yeah uh, you know there's no reason there's no reason for consciousness for a start you know let, let alone a sense of morality and, and empathy and caring for others yeah but even if we even if we could come up with some kind of arguments for it let's say you know i think uh liz called it science of the gaps um <laughs> that science will explain one day but even if science could explain one day what we always can hold on to is that God has communicated himself in a particular way at particular times so that we might know his particular will for us. Um, and so, so God isn't just a general blueprinter, but he, he comes and engages. He sustains. He doesn't just sustain all things, but that he intervenes. Um, and so he reveals, he acts upon what he's created, not just allowing it to function like a, a watchmaker as beautiful and as amazing as that could be but we also have to leave room for god to speak into time and space and to act in time and space and it's still small voice of god is universal yeah well uh yeah i think that because god has created all things mm-hmm. and so his you know god said or uh, paul says um his invisible attributes, you know, his power, his creativity is evident to all souls, basically. 
and uh, and it's and it's beckoning them to return. So yes, that that kind of small still voice may be there, um, but it's that that small seed in us that God is wanting to grow, and that we need to be attentive to um, to His calling us. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, anyone else? Yes. Uh, thanks for your talk. Um, Thank you. So you're talking about evidence of this, of God's love happening right. in people. And the primary evidence of that being um, the love, the manifestation of God's love in the community through the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. Um, thinking about the Ephesians passage, um, the first bit, it's like the, uh, I forget, the power you know, kind of clearing the way for Christ to come. Uh, I come from a more charismatic background. And so uh, sometimes people from more charismatic backgrounds have a lot of anxiety about whether things are happening to them properly or not. And uh, what you're supposed to feel exactly. So I appreciate the emphasis on like the objective evidence that God is working in the life of the community but I wonder if you could speak to the yeah how does that relate to this subjective or individual element too I can't remember the full quote from John Wimber we had someone recently come and speak about uh spiritual gifts uh and I come from a reformed open but cautious point of view just so you know but uh but I also live open-handedly I live at Labrie waiting for God to act and may, maybe God will act in a very miraculous way, but he also works supernaturally through the ordinary. And, uh, and I will not discount that. Even the rain and the sun are seen in the Bible as supernatural gifts, acts of his power. Even morality um, is, is God's supernatural act in the world. So we don't want to reduce God just to super spiritual things. And the ordinary is not God um that someone might hear the bible and their hearts are struck not just because it resonates but because they're struck and sometimes that experience can be uh i think it was i spoke of isaiah wanting to collapse in front of god because he's filled with dread and terror and so sometimes uh in some charismatic circles it can be just overwhelming warmth but there, can, there, there should be a healthy sense there can be also dread, confession, conviction. Uh, so that, that needs to be balanced. The thing that I always want to discern is what kind of people are they being made to be through these experiences? Are they chasing the experience? Has the experience become the idol? Or is Jesus the object of their faith, whether it comes through wonderful things, wondrous acts, or even through the ordinary? Are they just wonder seekers? Because <laughs> then I'm like, well, God doesn't want you just to be a wonder seeker. He wants you to name his marvelous deeds, but marvelous deeds of the rain and the sun and the deer, you know, being watered and these things, types of things. Um, but John Wimber said, I don't care if you fall down. I don't care if you fall down and roll over. I don't care if you fall down and roll over and roll down the hill. My only question is, is what kind of person is, what kind of person are you when you get up? 
So I think that's a very interesting quote. To, um, uh, I don't know exactly about how much rolling he allows. <laughs> I allow only so much rolling. But Ezekiel was allowed to wear a yoke and walk around naked. I'm just like, well, that's weird. <laughs> so if God wants to let people roll around, okay, it doesn't make sense to me. But the question I want to ask is what kind of fruit is being produced in their life? Is it, is it being the fruit of God's character? Have they become kinder, more patient, more generous, um, less lustful, less lying, less stealing? Are they being transformed by God's spirit? Because sometimes people can be such wonder seekers that it becomes a new type of competition among God's people. And it becomes, oh, that person becomes, you know, because they have more wonderful and more common experiences, they must be closer to God. I just thought of this now, and I don't know if someone else has said this, but maybe they're the lowest because God is giving them the lowest feed. Maybe it's the person who's, okay, God, I don't need to be all this wonder. I just need to calm down, and I just need the simple truth and love of ordinary relationships, your, 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 the food of your word. Um, but yeah, is fruit being produced in their life? Is that leading them to love one another, confess, um, be generous? And if that's the case, then I'm like, praise God. You want to say more to that? Is well, I think uh, what I was thinking of more specifically is, um, yeah, I mean, it kind of ties into the question of the experience of God's love and experiencing God's uh -huh. love for oneself. Um, yeah, because I think. Uh, yeah, in the charismatic world, um, and some would argue in the Protestant world more generally, uh, tends to be less incarnational and sacramental. Mm -hmm. um, more individualistic, more, more emotional. Yeah, more stress is put on the subjective experience uh, as the place where you get the assurance of God's love for you. Mm -hmm. And that always feels like a very murky sort of Thing. I see. Yeah. I think I understand. Uh, you know, there have been people who have been burnt out charismatics that have come because they've been because they've been living on the warm <coughs> feelings or the hot flame of God's love, and then it grows cold, and they feel that God has removed Himself from them, that God does not love them anymore. Um, and I would question that. I mean. God was very close to Jesus on the cross. God was very close to Jeremiah as he led him to be a prophet and people hated him. And he was constantly angry. I mean, Israel means wrestle with God and not in a, in a fun rolling around way, but like, I'm really struggling with you, God. Um, and so uh, God can express his love to us through rebuke conviction it's not to be without mercy it's not without promise it's, it's not without assurance so those need to be there and so uh i think that when we have that subjective experience we need to lay it um in uh, a community of people who are listening to the spirit to discern not just their personal experience but allow their experience to be interpreted by the community uh and even that's not final uh, but important. 
uh, to measure it against God's promises and his word? Is this something that is true? Uh, I remember someone came and they said they had lots of foul language toward God. And uh, they said, I prayed for a truck and God did not give me a truck. And you remember this. Someone remembers. It, it wasn't you, but you remember. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, well, maybe God just didn't want you to have a truck. It's not because he doesn't love you. He's like, no, God's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it was interesting. He said uh, a few weeks later, he's like, if I didn't spend all my money on drinking, I probably would have a truck in a house. And I was like, what? <laughs> rewind <laughs> maybe god wants you to work for that truck um instead of uh and so we need to measure it in community and against his word against his promises um and then over time so i think the subjective experience is one criteria but it's not all the criteria we need and we are in an environment where the subjective is everything uh, that's not just true in Christians. It's, it's about how it impacts me is what's true. And as Christians, we need to be very careful of that. Um, the object, um, Schaefer would say, is not about having faith in faith, it's having faith in Jesus. And Jesus can't be moved. But if we have faith in our faith, then we have faith in our faith feelings. And that can shift. Uh, and so we need to, we need to see that our faith is in the object that is solidly on the throne and cannot be dis dethroned. Thanks. Is that okay? Anyone else? Um, Dan, Dan Olson. Okay. Says, um, I recently saw an opera based on Khaled Hosseini's A Thousand Splendid Sons where some sincere Muslim people show genuine selflessness and love, apparently out of their love for Allah. This has made me ask how personal moral love differs between Christianity and Islam. It's a great question. Um, I, I'll tell the story that I've often told before. There was a, um, a young Australian girl, she was around 19, that came to English Abreed. And she had runners on and she constantly bounced and she had blonde ponytail and it always swayed in the wind. And she talked as she jogged beside you. She had so much energy. I was a bit jealous, but she said, um, you know, all my, all my, my family are atheists and I had a very loving family and, uh, and I just have lots of love for people. So why do I need God if there's all this love? And I said, um, you need God because you need to thank him for that, the love that he's given you. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the source is the one true God. Uh, God, sometimes people are born in very faithful families under difficult circumstances. Some people don't know God uh, and they grow up with lots of blessings. Uh, position, intelligence, attractiveness, uh, uh, opportunities, whatever it might be. Uh, and if they have a loving family, then I would, if I see a non-Christian family loving each other, I want to praise that. But I see, I want to praise it because it comes from the father, just as God gives rain and sun. Um, 
So when I see, if I were to see someone, Dan, like uh, Muslims being beneficent and mercy, merciful, I think that that can reflect uh, Allah's merciful will. The problem is um, that Christianity goes much further. It's saying that what it means by personal is different than that kind of personal, that, that God is so personal that he wants to relate to us as a lover. This is inconceivable for Allah to be like a lover of, of a prostitute, of an adulterous wife. But God has expressed himself as a lover, that even that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife reflects Christ's love for his bride is inconceivable in Muslim Islam. Uh, and so I'm not saying that it's not possible. I just want to give thanks to God when that happens. But I want to say it points to a God who is even far more loving than that concept can give. Did you want to follow that up, Dan? Or anyone else? Yeah. Yes. I think Lewis really covers that well in the last battle where Emmett the Caliban who serves Tash, yes. who represents the evil figure. And then he meets Aslan. And Aslan said, you know, the, the loving thing that is done in Tash's name, I take unto myself. And the vile things that are done in my name are taken by Tash. Yeah. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, we just have about five more minutes. Any other questions? Yes. Father, it was very, very good you're saying that the world needs to know that God is real, that he sent his son through the way that we love each other. Um, and I just, it makes me think of what kind of love that looks like practically. Hmm. And what is the most, yeah, what is the most powerful expressions that are different than the way that the, the world would love? Hmm. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear what people think of what tangible expressions that look like. But on a first pass for me, um, it would be loving people that are very difficult to love mm. um, with a love that's not any way like self-gratifying. I think a lot of people can love others when they're going to get something out of it. Yes. They're going to get a name or they're going to get a, some recognition. But in a way that is not at all recognized, that's difficult. And really has no grounds of personal gain whatsoever, unless you have your grounds of personal gain, something other than the person you love. And that's one. And yeah. Interested to see other people's takes. On that's great. Yeah. So you're saying that um, that you like the way the, the expressing that uh, that that God's love in Jesus should be demonstrated through how Christians love others. Totally. And that one example of that um, is loving someone that there's no advantage for you. There's no advantage or self-gratification or anything that, that you're loving them even as an enemy. It's hard to do. It's very hard it's very to do. It's unnatural for humans to do. It is. There's, it, it reminds me of a story, this uh, African woman, uh, she came from, I think Rwanda, but something like that. And I can't remember exactly which group she was from. So that's okay. But let's say that she was a Tootsie and she had a young son who was 16 
and, and she's telling this story. And her 16-year-old son, uh, uh, Tootsie, went and, uh, and went out and was killed by a, a Hutu. And she became very bitter and angry because she lost her son. And she would dream about killing this person. And so she kept praying that God would reveal this person to her so that she could kill them. And, uh, and she had a dream and she was walking by a house and she said that she knew it was the house of her enemy. And, uh, and, but Jesus was behind the house and she says, I want to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus like, you have to walk through the house. And she's like, I cannot walk through the house. That's the house of my enemy. Can I not walk around the house? And she woke up. She had that dream again. God, Jesus, I want to be with you. Well, you have to walk through the house. That's the house of my enemy. I cannot enter. Uh, she had that three times. And then one day she heard the door knock. And this boy knocked on the door. And he was the Hutu that killed her son. He was 16. And said, I have felt overwhelmed with guilt. I'm the one who killed your son. And you can take my life. I'm here. Like whatever you do with my life, it's, it's yours because I've killed your son. And so basically on his knees in front of her. And she said that was when she understood the prayer. And she said, I will not kill you, but I will have justice. Today you become my son to replace the one I lost. To me, that is evidence of Christian love. Um, in a radical way. Um, now, I haven't had that experience. I feel like quite the martyr when I'm nice to someone who's rude. <laughs> they cut me off in traffic, you know, or my son slurps soup and I'm patient. <laughs> tomato, tomato, you know, I feel like we're very equal. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know if anyone else has an example of that often. And this one comes, uh, two things that I want to say on that is, um, you know, for those who may know, uh, at the time of Jesus, uh, the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, you know, they were being ruled by them. Uh, there was a law in effect at the time that if a Roman came up and asked you, or rather told you to carry his stuff, you were required to carry it for a mile. And that's duty. Um, but Jesus came along and he said, if anyone asks you to carry their stuff for a mile, offer to carry it a second mile if anybody asks for your cloak give them your shirt as well you know and that first example i, I think is where the um, our, our colloquialism comes from that's the right word um go the extra mile mm -hmm. it's and that's part of the christian thing it's like even when people are taking advantage of you offer yourself completely mm -hmm. offer more and step out mm -hmm. and that's a way that we can practically do that through life and uh in comparison with you know, all the other acts of love that we, that we see in the world, that we see in culture that appears separated from Christianity. Um, there's, there's a, a book we've been talking about that's been kind of going around called Dominion. Uh, and it's a, an author, Tom Holland, who's a historian. And he went through and he has done research on everything from first century all the way up to present day and written about um, basically Western civilization history. Um, but he's looking at how Christianity shaped and formed almost everything we hold dear today. 
everything about compassion, loving one another, loving your enemies. Uh, and that has become such a foundation in Western civilization that we don't even realize it came from Christianity anymore. And so a lot of the world is sort of walking it out, but they're doing it outside of the relationship with God. So it can be confusing to see from the outside what the difference is. Um, but it's yeah, I like that. Um, you know, I, yeah, because there's so much that our culture has benefited from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And a lot of the benefits that we have are a result of that. And some people say we're using up the inheritance. And once the inheritance is gone, we're going to realize what we lost. Uh, and so, yeah, there you know, altruism, homeless shelters, uh, all these, all these things have, have a history in the Christian worldview, not all, but many, though there are other religions and other acts. Uh, so C.S. Lewis wrote the abolition of man, you know, don't, don't do what you would not have others do to you, Confucius. Uh, Romans would talk about treating, uh, to, to care for, you know, certain people um, and so books have started to be written trying to understand the sociological or psychological benefits of acting like a Christian uh, and saying, well, maybe this is why Christians created, because one of the dilemmas in evolutionary theory is, well, individualistically, we want survival of the fittest, but corporately, we want altruism. And how have we moved move from the individual bee to the hive mentality, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, well, people will say that we evolved in coming to understand we've, we've come and done things. And now when they look back and try to explain it, they use psychological or sociological language in order to do so. I think it was Tanya Lerman or someone like that who did um, the psychological power of prayer. Like basically, like, I don't think she was a Christian, but basically when people pray, they feel better for, they feel better about themselves and they have more hope, almost like that law of attraction. Uh, and so, so many of these things are rooted in what God has given us. And just because there is a chemical or psychological or sociological good reason to do it, doesn't mean that God hasn't done it. But, but if we're thinking about in, and so we shouldn't always look for the, the miraculous in order to say, okay, because it seems like everything can be explained away at some point. But I think that the, the question is, is like, in what ways can people come and say, this is different? I don't know why it's different, but it's different. Is that, is, Julia, is this in relation to that? Um, it is? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, and the other. Uh, Go for it. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think bound. I think our idea, our modern idea of boundaries, like I think boundaries are important. Um, boundaries, like you think of boundaries with difficult family members or whatever, but I think sometimes the modern view of boundaries is um, some of it is not Christian. Self protection, um, self care. It, it becomes like self protection, and so like I often picture myself like a jug of water and I'm at the last half cup, you know, and I'm, I'm just pouring out the last half cup. There's nothing left. And I, and I do forget that as a Christian that we do have the Holy Spirit and it's not like that. We're not like this, you know, half a cup of water left and we're, it's just going to be empty. 
Um, so I think that's important to think of. And then also mm -hmm. the self-protection thing of like, well, um, I think sometimes we're so afraid um, of having to let other people in that we don't want to let in that we don't realize that there's actually like there can be huge blessings and gifts that we we are not aware of um because our vision is just so small mm. um yeah so like i picture not that everyone's gonna live like this but like i i just see what my children um like their relationship with liz or donna or hannah it's it's just so beautiful, but but in our day and age, like the family unit of, you know, the four of us is just totally protected. And all we can do is go to the soccer games. We have no energy besides like, you know, it's all about the family unit and it's all about the children. And maybe you have company over, but it's not like, you don't want people living with you and stuff, you know, so. I love that you brought up the idea of limited resources because we so often think of ourselves as limited resources. Also institutions think of themselves as limited resources, especially post COVID. Uh, and I experienced that among churches in Victoria, as soon as I came here pre COVID, that everyone's like, you know, don't steal my sheep. <laughs> churches grow because sheep move to the other pen, you know, uh, and they're like, hey, our church has grown by 200 people, you know, it's like, well, no, they just were at this other church, and mm -hmm. they had a falling out or something, you know what I mean, but what happens is that we want to be so protective of what God has given us that we end up burying the talents and saying, no, actually, we shouldn't, if God has given us this, we need to continue to live open-handedly, and we need to take the risk of not thinking that we only have limited resources, but that God can equip us and enable us to receive the stranger. Um, and so uh, Schaefer talks about if we were demonstrating as a church this reality, we would open the door for the intellectuals, the working people, and the new pagans. That's what, what he says. Uh, that we're so nervous about letting people into our church. Uh, we're so worried about letting people into our homes and into our lives, people that may be different. And so we want to just have limited resources around people who are like-minded or social economic class. Uh, we need to be more radical in how, it doesn't mean that we can be like, I can't be all things to all people, uh, but we as a church can be through the empowerment of Jesus to say, what is God calling us to be in our neighborhood? in these relationships and how might we welcome people in? And that's where I love about as it is in heaven, because people off the streets are coming into the church wanting to be a part of the choir, not just because it's excellent, but because they're experiencing community and love and acceptance. Uh, the church needs to remain moral and ordered and desiring the good in Jesus, not just their own perceived good. But at the same time, we need to be so demonstrable that uh, that we say, okay, Jesus, you, you are the head and we're not going to just be limited resources. We need to see you at work. And so allowing ourselves to be a little bit riskier, um, welcoming people in. Um, I think that that would be real evidence to, to it. So thank you for bringing that up about the idea of limited resource. And that would be something different because the church, um, uh, because 
the churches are in Victoria are often so afraid of losing parishioners or losing congregants. And we should not worry about losing or gaining. We just need to think about how am I faithful to Jesus and figuring it out on the go. Uh, I think that that would be better. And trust that our God is generous. Unlimited resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, out of your, out of the glory of your riches, he says. Yeah, that's what Sam says. I think I've come to believe that a scarcity mentality is sin. It raises resources to the place of God instead of believing God's promises to give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. It keeps us from fully loving, exemplified through giving of ourselves and our material good and our time. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, if you want to talk to me, uh, you can come on up. But uh, thanks for coming and uh, and hope that you all have a good night. And goodbye to all y'all. <laughs>